Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we're glad to have you. We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community. Like uh, Steph was saying, small groups is like just one of the best ways to do that. It's a great way to like meet people, build relationships, grow in your faith, and, and live out the gospel together in community. And so I'd love to invite you to consider checking one of those out. Uh, excited to, as well to continue our series in the Gospel of John. We are nearing the very end of the book. We're, we're almost there. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's important to understand that everything John's been writing about Jesus and his life and kind of his, his documentary about Jesus has been building up to this final section where we've been in the last couple of weeks, this last part of the book where John recounts for us Jesus' arrest and his death and his resurrection. And, and it's important that you see that John wants you to see that this is like the culmination of everything he's been writing about so far. In the first part of the book, we saw John focusing on Jesus' public ministry, where he went around teaching and preaching and doing miracles. And at the heart of that first section of John's gospel is this idea that Jesus didn't just claim to be a wise teacher or another prophet, but rather that he claimed and demonstrated that he was, in fact, God himself, the great I Am, the, the Messiah, the one who'd come to rescue and redeem people from the ultimate enemies of Satan and Satan and death. And John's calling people to, to a faith in Jesus that believes that that's what, that who he said he was, that he is. In that second part of the book, John zooms in on Jesus' final few days with his disciples, and he fleshes out in this just final time with his disciples, he, he outlines for them what it looks like for the kind of life and ministry he's calling them to lead after his death. Essentially, essentially that second part of John's gospel is about highlighting what a life that's been transformed by real, authentic faith in Jesus, what it looks like. It's not just a head-level thing. It's something that changes the way that we live in real, meaningful ways. And, and what John's trying to do is he wraps up the, his gospel, is, is to pull all those things together. And he's trying to show us how in Jesus' death and his resurrection, it's not only the ultimate proof that everything Jesus said in the first part about in the first part of the book about himself, it's true, but it's also the source of the motivation and the power that we need to actually live the kind of transformed lives he calls his followers to in the second part of the book. And so everything hinges in on this last section, on, on Jesus' death. And what we see in the last few weeks is we saw Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and his trials before the Jewish religious leaders and before Pilate, the Roman governor, what John's trying to help us to see, especially in that section, is that even though it seems like on the surface that Jesus kind of looks like a, a helpless victim who's kind of caught in some sinister plot, that he's just some completely subject to the whims of these kind of faithless, fickle, power-hungry people, what John makes abundantly clear is that Jesus is the one who's actually in control of everything. Over and over again, he points that out to us, that Jesus is not a pawn in someone else's game. He's the king, and he's ruling and reigning. Even in the midst of a situation that seems like utter chaos, he is sovereignly working out God's will. He's at work bringing about his plans. What I want to show you this morning as we kind of get to the climax of the book, as we see Jesus' death on the cross, that what John wants to see is that in his death, Jesus finishes the work the Father sent him to do. He finishes the work that the Father sent him to do. What John's trying to help us to see is that through faith in Jesus' finished work, you and I finally get to rest. 
Man, it is such a powerful passage this morning. I can't wait to show it to you. It's really good news. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into the book together. Jesus, thanks so much for you and for our time together in your word. And God, as we come together this morning to see your death on the cross for us, God, we pray that uh, the good news of your finished work on our behalf would be good news to us. And God, that it would transform us in ways that produce uh, joy and life, that transform our lives so that we look more and more like you. And so God, we need your help with that. I don't have any power to bring any of that about, but you do. And so uh, for our good and for your glory as we live for you, Jesus, would you help us to see your finished work as finished for us this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. It reads this way. Carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John's way of describing himself in, in the gospel, he, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. The jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it, but the sponge put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to his lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But the, when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. You see, these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for, for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. He'd secretly, uh, because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. 
And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Well, so much going on in our passage, but it all begins with the beginning here with, with Pilate. Having been politically outmaneuvered, outmaneuvered by the Jewish religious leaders, he kind of finally gives in to their demands, and, and he turns Jesus over to be crucified. But even though he's lost this kind of battle with the Jewish leaders, they've kind of pushed him to doing something he doesn't really want to do, Pilate gets kind of one last proverbial jab in at them. And, and he writes on this placard that would have been on the, the, the list or kind of been on the, 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 the cross of each of the different criminals. It was a placard that would have described the, the crime that they were being crucified for. And on Jesus' placard, Pilate has written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And he has it written in three languages so that no matter what part of the Roman Empire you were from, you could read it. Everyone could read it. And he knew that that was something the Jewish leaders hated, that they, they would have just totally hated. He knows that because they've just rejected Jesus as their king. The final words in last week's passage, right? The religious leaders, they say, we have no king but Caesar. You see, but while Pilate had kind of used this title inscribed in an effort to mock the Jews and exact some kind of personal revenge, all four of the gospel writers include this detail in their accounts of Jesus' death because even in his vengeful ignorance, Pilate is proclaiming something that is absolutely true about Jesus, something far more true than even he knows. You see, Jesus was not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Those who speak Aramaic and those who speak Greek and all those who speak any language, Jesus is the real, true king. And so just like the rest of Jesus' enemies, Pilate's self-centered actions are really just actually an unwitting part of God's own sovereign plans. You see, Pilate and the Roman government and the Jewish religious leaders, even the soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross, right? They're just playing their part in God's greater purposes, his greater plans, that, a plan that he'd been giving glimpses of throughout the whole course of of, of, of the scriptures. See, that brings us to the, one of the first things that you have to see that characterizes John's account of Jesus' death. You see, one of the things that John wants to make abundantly clear for us is that Jesus' death, it was the fulfillment of scripture. You see, three times in our passage, five times in, in chapters 18 and 19 alone, right, John specifically highlights how the events surrounding Jesus' death were the fulfillment of God's word. They're the fulfillment of scriptures. In verse 24, John tells us that the, the reason why the soldiers who laid claim to Jesus' clothes, right, the, well, the reason why they divided them amongst themselves and cast lots for that final piece wasn't just because they decided to play nice with each other and share that day but was instead happens so that the words of Psalm 22, verse 18, might be fulfilled. See, Psalm 22 was written by King David almost a, a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross. And it's the most quoted psalm by the New Testament writers, if you look back. And, but it was always this very mysterious psalm up until the time of the New Testament. You see, because in it, David, he's, he basically is describing this execution scene. 
But while you look at his life, what you realize is that even though this Psalm 22, it's written from a first-person perspective, none of that stuff happened to David. Right? He, he was never in this kind of a situation. And so it leaves you wondering, who is this really about? What's, what's really going on here? See, it's not until you get to the cross that you see what David was really writing about. You see, in the midst of his own suffering, God had given David eyes to see the one whose suffering would not just exceed his own, but one whose suffering would supersede his own. One whose words from the cross weren't just an echo of verse 18 about his divided clothes, but one whose very words would echo the words that Psalm 22 begins with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Psalm 22, it comes up again in verse 28 when John describes how the, the reason why Jesus cries out that he's thirsty wasn't because he was physically thirsty. See, he'd been beaten and scourged. He had a crown of thorns jammed on his skull. He had spikes driven through his hands and his feet and as he was nailed to the cross. And then all of the gospel writers repeatedly emphasize how Jesus didn't respond to that. He didn't, he didn't cry out. He didn't, he didn't say anything as, as, he was being, as he was being killed. Right? And so the expression of thirst here is not a result of him finally kind of reaching his limit and just being like, you know what? No more. I can't take any more. I need a drink, right? That's not what's going on here. Instead, John says his cry of thirst happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus' thirst was the, the thirst of the one Psalm 22 anticipated, the one whose mouth was dried up like a pot shard and whose stung would, tongue would stick to his roof, the one who had been laid in the dust of death. See, Jesus' death, it's the fulfillment of all that David had written about those thousand years ago. In his death, the true suffering king of Psalm 22 is finally revealed. You see, but it's not just Psalm 22 that finds its fulfillment in Jesus' death. Right in verse 36, John tells us that when the soldiers went to break Jesus' legs, right, in an effort to kind of quicken his death by preventing him from standing up and gasping for air, the reason why they don't go through with it isn't because they're trying to just ignore the Jews who wanted the bodies down by sunset, was instead to fulfill the imagery of Exodus chapter 12 and Numbers chapter 9, which describe how the, the bones of the lamb that was slain for the Passover meal were to remain unbroken. If you've been with us throughout our study of John, you'll know that, that Jesus' identity as the, the true and better, the ultimate Passover lamb, is this theme that John keeps coming back to over and over again. He begins the gospel in chapter 1 by describing how John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus for the first time, he cries out, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We read in chapter 5 how at the, the context, the setting for Jesus' great meal where he feeds the 5,000 and he offers this meal that really satisfies, that really fulfills. John tells us that that was the context that that was done in, was in the context of the Passover. And here at the very end of all things, ironically, the Jewish religious leaders, they're eager to get his body down off the cross so they can make their own sacrifices and celebrate the Passover themselves. And yet what they missed is that the ultimate Passover lamb had already been slain. That in him, the ultimate escape from death, that the blood, those spotless lambs on the doorposts of their ancestors in Egypt foreshadowed, that it had finally come to pass. See, the true, spotless, unblemished, unbroken Lamb of God had been slain in their place. 
And yet they had missed it. And when the soldiers confirmed Jesus' death by piercing his side, the atoning blood and cleansing water God's people so desperately needed had finally come. Not only to forgive them of their sins and pay its debt, but to wash them clean from all their unrighteousness. Imagery that John tells us in verse 37 is the fulfillment of words God spoke through the prophet Zechariah in chapter 12 and 13. Where he foreshadows this day when God's people will look on the one whom they've pierced and will see a, a fountain opened up, springing forth with water that will cleanse them from all their sin. I see what John's trying to make abundantly, obviously clear is that Jesus' death was not an accident. Nor was it just merely the result of some human plans. Instead, his death was the culmination of God's own plan of redemption, a plan he'd been foreshadowing since the moment sin entered the world and he promised Adam and Eve that one day someone would come to crush the head of the serpent and put an end to Satan and sin and death. And, and John's trying to help us to see that in Jesus, all those promises have been fulfilled. They come to pass. They all find their fulfillment in him. And so the question that you have to ask then is, why is it so important why, is it, why does John seem like it's so important that we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures? Why is that such a big deal to him? And the truth is that the reason is because John knows that it's only when you see the cross as the climax of all of the scriptures, when you, it's only when you see the person and the work of Jesus as the, as the center line through which everything connects that you'll be able to understand the significance of Jesus' final words. Verse 30. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. See, the message of the Bible from the very beginning is that God longs to dwell with his people. In the garden, we see God walking with Adam and Eve in a perfect kind of relationship with them. I mean, that the problem that runs throughout the line of Scripture is that because God is altogether holy and pure, He cannot be in the presence of sin. More accurately, sin cannot be in His presence without being utterly crushed and destroyed. And so there's this tension throughout the whole Old Testament of a God who's created humanity and who longs for a relationship with them and to dwell amongst them, and yet a humanity who has separated themselves from him in their sin. And so how is that problem going to be solved? How is that tension going to come to resolution? Right, so all those passages that the New Testament writers like John, they point to Jesus fulfilling. They're not just these cool connections. They're not just these, wow, did you notice that coincidence, how those things lined up? No, they're meant to show you that Jesus' death is God's answer to that problem. That his death is the solution to a holy God longing to dwell with a sinful people. And without Christ, you and I, we stand condemned before God. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And it's not just that we've behaved badly, but instead the scriptures say that they describe our sin as a mutinous rebellion against God. Instead of submitting to his good kingly rule and authority, we reject him as king and we enthrone ourselves. And we all decide that we would be better gods than he would. That we're the ones who should decide what is true and right and good. That we know better than him. And so because God is not just good and loving, but also just, our sin must be accounted for. 
See, that brings us back to Jesus' final words. To that phrase, it is finished. It's just one word in the original language, tetelestai. It was an accounting term. It meant to be paid in full. It's a word that merchants would stamp on a bill that had been finished and paid for, completed. One that was done and over. One that would stay that way forever. You see, it's so easy to look at Jesus hanging on a cross, naked and beaten and bloodied, and to think that those final words that he utters are words of defeat. And yet what John wants to make clear is that Jesus doesn't say, I'm finished. He says, it is finished. To the plans God had been bringing about since sin entered the world to overcome the enemies of Satan and sin and death and to be the means by which people might receive forgiveness and reconciliation and be able to dwell with a pure and holy God. Everything necessary to bring all things back to the way that they once were has been finished in Jesus. Peter writes it this way in his first letter to the churches. He says, Jesus Christ died for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. See, what John's trying to help you to see this morning is that Jesus was stripped naked and his clothes were divided so that you and I might be clothed with his righteousness. And he bore the ultimate thirst, the thirst of separation from God so that you and I might never have to thirst again. He was the perfect, unblemished, unbroken lamb of God whose blood paid the penalty for our sins so that you and I might escape death. And water flowed from his side so that we might not just be forgiven, but that we might be cleansed, made new, given new life. You see, Jesus accomplished all the things the Old Testament scriptures said he would. And when he cried out, it is finished, his words rang out like a merchant who stamped the bill, paid in full. You see, God finished the work so that he can once again dwell with his people. And because he finished the work, you and I get to rest. To Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 and 10 says it this way, that there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, they rest from their works, just as God did from his. See, this is the message that's at the very heart of the gospel. It's a message that runs counter to the message of religion. See, religion is the default mode of every human heart. And it says that, that the, religion is always about the, the work that we try to do to get to God. And that the message of the gospel is all about the work that Jesus did to get to us. See, religion, it always depends on what you do. And yet the message of the gospel is this proclamation that our relationship with God depends not on what we do, but what on Jesus has already done. See, religion, it always says, get to work. Get to work fixing yourself and cleaning yourself up and looking good enough and being good enough and trying hard enough. Go to church more and pray more and give more and do more. And, and yet the gospel says, not just get to work, but the gospel says the work is done. And it invites us to rest in Jesus' finished work. See, religion says, finish the work. And that the gospel always says, receive 
Jesus' finished work. See, religion is always Jesus plus something. That's the work that needs to get finished. And yet the message of the gospel is that Jesus plus nothing is everything you need. See, when you believe that Jesus finished the work to make you right with God and to bring you into relationship with him, then you get to rest. You get to rest. You see, you can stop living for the approval of God and for his acceptance, and you start living from it. And you start, instead of in fear of losing it, or in wonder if you ever have it, you start living full of joy because you know that even though you didn't deserve it, he's bestowed it on you. And when that happens, what it does is it transforms your life. You see, John wants to help us see that resting Right, resting in Jesus' finished work, it doesn't look like spiritual apathy. Instead, it looks like this picture of these two men at the end of the passage whose, whose lives have been transformed by their faith in Jesus. John tells us about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and there's this picture of the kind of believing and resting that John's telling us that in verse 35 that his testimony about Jesus' death is meant to produce in us. Right, we met Nicodemus earlier in John's gospel when John tells us in chapter 3 that he comes to Jesus under the cover of night. Nicodemus is a religious leader and he's afraid that his fellow Jewish religious leaders, uh, what they'll think of him if they see him associating with Jesus. And he is intensely curious about him. He doesn't understand him and so he comes to Jesus at night, hedging his bets, trying to figure out what he is. Similarly, John tells us about Joseph of Arimathea. We learn in the other Gospels that he's also a Jewish religious leader. John tells us in verse 38, he's become a disciple of Jesus, but he's done so in secret. right? Because he's afraid of the Jewish leaders. And yet the actions of both of these men, they run counter to everything we've been told about them so far. They have this newfound boldness that's coming from their faith in Jesus' finished work. See, these two men who were too afraid to even be seen associating with Jesus before his death, they now go boldly before Pilate, who's just crucified Jesus on the charges of sedition, and whose Jewish religious leaders have rejected him entirely and demanded his death. These two men, they come and they honor Jesus by burying him in a tomb instead of letting his body just get tossed in the ditch. And they do this at the cost of their reputations. St. Joseph and Nicodemus, they, they come out of the dark and into the light. They're no longer ashamed to be publicly identified with him. They have this newfound boldness. But more than that, they also have this newfound humility. See, preparing a body for burial was seen as this really disgusting and demeaning task. It was something only slaves or women would do. And yet, these two respected leaders of their day, who would never be caught dead doing something like this in their culture, they gladly take on this task. And they wrap Jesus' body in linens. And they prepare him for burial. You see, they're not only bold, they are humble. And this kind of bold humility that characterizes them, it's also marked by sacrifice. See, they both knew that their actions would be costly, not just towards their reputations among their fellow Jewish leaders, but it would be financially costly for them. 
Joseph gave Jesus his own tomb, Matthew tells us. Something that would have been an incredibly huge expense. And Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of spices. That's the kind of quantity you use for a king's burial. A huge expense. And yet it's clear that there's never any doubt in their minds about what they should be doing. They don't waffle for a few days. We wonder if this is what we're supposed to do. They go to Pilate and they wrap Jesus' body in linens and they place him in, the, in, in his own tomb. And they do that within hours of his death. Not just costly financially or socially. See, burying Jesus would have cost them their own celebration of the Passover. See, you can't touch a dead body and still participate in the Passover. You would have been unclean. And yet it's so clear they do not care. They are not concerned. The most important festival of the entire year, it just doesn't even register on their things to be concerned about. Because they had found the real lamb the Passover was always pointing them to. You see, when you see Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture, when you see that he's the one whose finished work pays your debt and restores your relationship with God, and when you rest in his finished work, it overflows into a life that is utterly transformed. A life that's characterized by a newfound boldness and a humility, and a sacrificial kind of worship that's found in keeping with Jesus' boldness and his humility and his sacrifices for you. You see, and it's Jesus' finished work, his sacrifice on the cross. That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Right, community doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's this chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves of Jesus' death on our, in our place, on our behalf, as he finished the work that sealed our redemption. And so if you put your trust in him, in his finished work on your behalf, then during our time of worship, go take communion. There's a table in the back on the left and on the right. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and blood that were broken and shed for you. And if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, and you're not sure if you're ready to su submit to him as king, then I just want you to know how welcome you are here. But I'd encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, your finished work on the cross is enough. And my hope is in you and nothing else. And so as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. See, the heart of John's gospel is a desire that we wouldn't just have a head-level knowledge about Jesus, but that we would have a life-transforming, heart-level faith in him. And so at the root of all the stories, John's inviting you to ask the question, do you know about him, or do you believe in him? You see, at the heart of believing in Jesus is resting in his finished work. And yet the problem is, is that instead of resting in Jesus' finished work for us, 
we tend to believe this lie that somehow the work isn't finished and we need to add to it. We think, well, Jesus finished his part, so now we've got to do our own part, right? We've got to get to work. Or, or when we sin, we try to just beat ourselves up, or we wallow in shame and guilt, thinking that if we just feel bad enough about it, that that'll really finish the work. Or we treat the cross like it's just this mere second chance opportunity that, yeah, we messed up, but we have this new chance in Jesus, but we just can't mess it up again. We've got to make sure that we, we, we do it right this time, that, that, that we live worthy of his sacrifice. I don't know if you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan. At the end of the movie, Private Ryan stands at the, at the, at the, at the, stone, at the tombstone of, of his captain, who along with all of the other men who had come to rescue him gave their lives for his freedom. And he's this man, Captain Private Ryan, is now 60 years old. As he stands in the front of his captain's tomb, he remembers his dying words to him. See, Captain Miller's last words to Private Ryan were, earn this. And what you see at the end of his life is that Private Ryan has lived a life not freed by the life he was given by his comrades but a life that has spent under the crushing weight of trying to earn a sacrifice he was not worthy of. You see, and it can be easy to feel the same way about the cross for us. But I need you to see this morning, right? Jesus's final words are not earn this. They're not make it worth it. They're not don't mess it up again. See, Jesus' final words to you are, it is finished. See, the reality is that so many of you are here this morning and you are absolutely exhausted because you are spending your life trying to finish a work that's already done. See, but the gospel speaks a better word. See, religion, that default mode of our heart, it cries out, right, finish the work. And yet the gospel cries out, it is already finished. And there's this invitation for us as we examine John's account of Jesus' death, not just to believe that he died in our place, but that to believe that all that was necessary for a sinful and wicked and rebellious people to be reunited with a holy God who longs to dwell with us has been finished in his death. Not only is there nothing you could add, there is nothing more that is needed. As the last verse of James Proctor's famous hymn goes, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. See, that's the message of the gospel. Religion says get to work. And yet Jesus says, the work is finished. And when you rest in his finished work, it transforms you. And you're characterized increasingly by a kind of boldness and humility and sacrifice that reflects his own for you. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are so grateful to get to come before you this morning, not trying to earn your favor 
by being good Christians, not trying to merit what you have done, not trying to add something to it, but instead Jesus longing to rest in your finished work on our behalf. And Jesus, we just want to confess to you, we so often slip back into believing the lie that your work isn't done, that there's something more that we need to do. And we ask, Jesus, that you might forgive us for thinking we could add anything to your work. And instead, help us, Jesus, empower us to see your death on the cross in our place as the final word, as the finish line, as the end all be all. And might that good news transform us like it did for Joseph and it did for Nicodemus. And might we be characterized in response to your love for us. Might we be characterized with boldness and humility and a glad willingness to pay whatever it costs to make you known. We love you, God. Thanks that you loved us first. Amen.